welcome to a special edition of the McGregor Podcast. Recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a hot topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. The topic, critical race theory and intersectionality. And as you can imagine, it was a very hot topic. The title of Pastor Russell's teaching that night was, A Culture Derailed, A Biblical Look at Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality. Join me now as we listen together to part one of A Culture Derailed. A couple of days ago on Sunday morning, I uh, sort of owned, owned a little bit the role of, of a teacher of New Testament text theory. Tonight, I sort of own the role of teaching a little bit about some social, social anthropology theory. Pastor Kerry and I, we've publicized this. You, you, know, you, if you pay attention to McGregor's newsletters and such, you know this is the time for that. Pastor Kerry and I, he talked about getting some sleep. Um, one of the reasons that we are we are looking forward to getting some sleep tonight is that both he and I are on a plane overnight tomorrow night uh, on our way to Athens with with the nearly thirty of you. Uh, so for the next week and a half, it's biblical archaeology. So text theory, sociology, and biblical archaeology. <sighs> I cannot wait to once again just say, open your Bible and let me talk you through this passage. That's going to be fun. But this topic tonight deals with, the title that I've chosen is A Culture Derailed. One of the things that goes with being, well, some of you in the room are notably younger than I am. Some of you in the room are my age, maybe a hair older. And one of the things that we have learned down the years, you and I, is that, that cultural and social change goes with the territory. Um, you remember your first cell phone. I remember when portable phones came in suitcases, and if you weren't some sort of high flyer, you didn't have one. And now third graders have them with enough computing power to fly the space shuttle. There is one very disturbing trend that I wish would go away, but apparently it's not going to. This trend has it had its beginnings in the... Uh, blue-collar British society about 150 years ago. And for a long time, it stayed on that side of the Atlantic. Around the turn of the century, it began to turn up in the speech of some North Americans. And now in North America, it has become very common, particularly among young ladies. I'm talking about, of course, T-glottalization. T-glottalization. Say with me the word kitten. Kitten. Saying kitten requires that the K explode off the back of the mouth. The T in the middle requires that the tongue tap the back of the teeth. Kitten, you should even feel it, kitten. What's happening in North American speech today, most 
disquietingly is that middle T is disappearing. And now we are left with kittens. We get into elevators and press buttons. We climb mountains. This is disturbing, lazy, and weird. Russell, what are you doing? Not all change in the way a culture thinks is dangerous. Not all ways, the ways that culture morphs over time are necessarily consequential. Change happens. But there is a macro-cultural change that is a framework within which both the, both the present, much of what's going on presently with human sexuality and certainly much of what is going on today with, with race and ethnicity have their roots in, in major philosophical ages. Most of us who've been around a few years lived the majority of our life, or at least a big chunk of it, in what um, historians will, will call the modern era. The modern era has roots that go all the way back to the Enlightenment, where in the Enlightenment, the cultural consensus became, we can actually know things. We can do fact-based, empirical determination of facts. We can derive truths that can be tested and, and hypotheses put to the test to determine if they are in fact actually true or actually false. The, the philosophical branch ontology, ontology is the philosophy of the isness of a thing. If the chair I'm sitting in is made of plastic, it is not made of wood. That's a very modern era way of thinking. The modern era gave rise to the Industrial Revolution because it, it opened the door to think in terms of math and physics, mechanics, physical systems. For us as believers, the modern era made evidence-based apologetics a valuable tool. Because if, if the rocks at the very bottom of the Grand Canyon contain fully developed pine pollen fossilized, and they do, that means the rocks at the bottom of the Grand Canyon are not bazillions of years older than fully developed conifer trees plays havoc with the evolutionary timeline based on fact. Because again, under modernism, if two plus two equals four, two plus two cannot equal five. But around the, and, and there are no specific dates, but around the late 60s and into the 70s, there began to arise the dawn of, of the age that has dominated recent decades and is in full ascendancy today, the so-called post-modernism. We are in the post-modern era. The post-modern era does not value truth, ontological fact. The post-modern era values my truth. You have your truth, 
and I have my truth, they are both generally held to be true, though they may be absolutely contradictory. Postmodernism sees no problem with that. It's, <laughs> I've teased before over there on Sunday morning. Whenever you make the statement, perception is reality, you are endorsing postmodern thought. No modernist would fail to differentiate between perception and reality as two different things. They are two different things. Perception is not reality. If perception equals reality, then the term delusional has no definition. If I think you are a great Dane, then that perception is my reality. Because y'all taught me perception is reality. So I get to regard you as a great Dane if that's how I perceive you. You see the problem? Reality is reality. Modernism is actually pretty consistent with a biblical worldview. Those of us who hold a biblical worldview don't shrink back from any fact. In fact, we desire to know more because all truth is knit together in the orderly mind of God. Postmodernism's capacity to generate its own truth. In just recent years, and this absolutely matters in a conversation about critical race theory. We're coming to sort of a post-postmodern era. It hasn't been really named in a consensus way yet. I have come to call it what I call a, a sort of a militant, fully realized postmodernism. In postmodernism, I am entitled to my truth. If I think uh, my car is a camel that I ride across the desert. I'm entitled to believe that in modernism because that's my truth. In militant realized postmodernism, very much rising as the spirit of this age, not only am I entitled to my truth, but you are obligated to my truth. Not simply to leave me alone as I believe crazy stuff, but to jump in with me in the crazy stuff I believe. Whether or not it is ontologically actual. So, if you raise your hand quietly in the back of the room and say, Bruce Jenner is still a guy. He's had some surgeries and he dresses funny. But dude is a dude. Dude looks like a lady, Aerosmith shout out. <laughs> Y'all are on top of it. But he's a dude. I, I do not accept the obligation to join him in his make-believe. And yet we have all seen material where in some settings, a fourth grade little boy comes to school one day and says, hi, teacher, today I am a girl. The system is obligated to respond to him as though he is a girl. That's 
delusionalism. I want to talk to you tonight about, about one topic briefly and then one topic more expansively. I want to touch briefly on, on how this is, is creeping in on issues of gender, not creeping in, charging in on issues of gender and sexuality. Let's, let's do a little fundamental biblical truth. Gender and sexuality are assigned by God and are fundamental to identity. Who you are is bound up in part. There are many other things that define who you are, but gender is absolutely a definitional component of who you are. That is the gender to which the living God assigned you. He, by the way, is the only one that assigns genders. We talk about gender assignment this and gender assignment that. The living God owns 100% of the gender assignment capacity. The verb to identify. Again, in a world where I get to create my own reality and impose it upon you, the verb identify takes on very real meaning. If I wake up tomorrow and I identify as a rhododendron, how dare you say I'm not one? But the, look, the verb to identify has one legitimate meaning. I'm Russell. Will you identify yourself? Yes, this is my driver's license. I identify as Russell Howard of Fort Myers, Florida. The verb is now used in various nonsense ways. As I used it a moment ago, I declare my being as other than it is. I identify as a female. I identify as, we'll see in the CRT conversation, uh, it is now fairly common in certain corners of the culture for people to identify as an ethnicity other than that ethnicity that connects to the people from whom they are biologically descended. It's, it's a meaningless word used in that way. Um, church, we have to remember in terms of, of, of gender confusion and homosexuality. Those of us who love Jesus and love the word of God, we need to remember that temptation is temptation and sin is sin. Often on the subject of homosexuality, the church, and I'm not chasing this rabbit far tonight, the church has, has at large has treated the temptation and the sin as though they are the same thing. We must remember that temptation is temptation and sin is sin. If I, were, if I were sinning every time I am tempted in any area of my life, I, uh, we don't fail to make that differentiation in most areas. Someone who is tempted to rob a bank is not guilty of robbing a bank. Somebody who is tempted with adultery is not committing adultery. Someone who is tempted with homosexual desire is not a homosexual. That shouldn't even be surprising, and yet, and yet, too often it is. Homosexual marriage is simple fornication. 
It just is. There's no such thing as homosexual marriage. The author of marriage defined marriage, and just as individuals cannot speak non-existent things into existence, neither can governments. The author of marriage has said what a marriage is. The state has no capacity to create a new category as they have tell themselves they've done. And persistent behavior, pardon me, persistent homosexual behavior is a sign of lostness. Ongoing struggle with temptation is not a sign of lostness. If I think about fire too much, Fire fascinates me too much. I'm not an arsonist until I light a building up. But as, as for the activity, it's become a bit of a cop-out. Here at McGregor, and, and, and most of you are associated with McGregor, here at McGregor we have an um, understanding of our biblical duty to church discipline. If a member of our church becomes involved in open, unrepented of, serious sin, we strive to handle that biblically through a Matthew 18 process. All too often, churches have been guilty of the exact sin the church at Corinth is being corrected for in 1 Corinthians 5. They're so tolerant of sexual misconduct, they're proud of themselves. 1 Corinthians 5 is written to address at Corinth the issue where there was flagrant sexual immorality in the church and they were proud of how tolerant they were that they weren't dealing with it. Sounds like 2021 in some quarters. But we're all sinners. Yes! But there are certain defining sins. Well, I will leave it to Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that is somebody whose life continues to be defined by a pattern of sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. He's describing things out of which they got saved. Such were some of you, but... You were washed, sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. They are used to be behaviors. We cannot hide, no, we cannot reinvent a form of Christianity where persistent, flagrant, serious sin is smiled and nodded at because after all, we're all sinners. Unless if we are to do that, we need to go ahead and admit that we have thrown out the word of God 
and we're doing something other than biblical Christianity. All right, now on to critical race theory. Let me tell you what we are, what we are not going to deal with tonight in terms of, of, of allotted time. We're not gonna do much with the history of CRT. It has a, it has a profound, uh, now approaching century-long academic history. Ironically, its roots are with a bunch of, uh, well, Nazis. And I'm not kidding. It's, it's literature. There are shelves of it. Um, we will deal a little bit with critical race theory and its opposition to authentic progress in racial equality. Make no mistake, the critical race theory, the, the current social justice movement driven by critical race theory hates, hates the mindset that drove the civil rights theory of the 50s and 60s. It is not an extension of that movement. It is another beast, and it does not like the civil rights movement and does not share its goals. Let's talk about some concepts. Most of what I'm gonna share uh, for the remainder of tonight is gonna, is gonna be centered around words and definitions. I know that we did not give you a fill in the blank sheet, I know that I'm not using the screens, but if I, use some, if I say something that's difficult to spell, I'll spell it for you if it's a non-intuitive word, and y'all all got access to the internet, you can, you can search and dig. In fact, I'd love for you to. A, if not the central concept you must understand to understand critical race theory is the concept of the hegemony. Pronounced like hegemony cricket from Pinocchio, but spelled a little bit differently. I added the he, it would be just Jiminy Cricket if it were the guy from Pinocchio. Hegemony, H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y, hegemony. Sometimes used with the, the definite article, the hegemony. The hegemony in a given culture under critical race theory is the, the defined group that is the possessor of defining cultural power. The hegemony. Interestingly enough, it also means as a noun, the power that group exercises. The hegemony exercises hegemony. Most critical race theorists in North America define the hegemony as, um, well, Upper middle-aged, light-skinned, decently educated, quite comfortable with my own gender. The hegemony. Now, one thing you have to understand about critical race theory, and this next term will help you with this. <laughs> well, let me go ahead and give you the next term. Whiteness. Whiteness. 
There's no such thing as a white human being unless you are utterly genetically albino. There is not a white person in this room. There are all sorts of different melanin levels in this room, but nobody is white. Whiteness in critical race theory is not, not, not defined in terms of skin color or skin tone. Whiteness generally is the collective characteristics and beliefs of the hegemony. If you are characterized by hegemonous characteristics and you think in hegemonous ways, you are et up with whiteness no matter your melanin level. So what are some of the characteristics of whiteness? This little piece and I'll describe it, it'll be available to you. If you do a search on Smithsonian Institution, the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Institution whiteness brochure, you will find articles where the Smithsonian had to pull this out of publication. It's readily available online as a PDF. They did it. It's what they believe. They had to pull it because they overplayed their hand. In a brochure, there was also a poster uh, at the Smithsonian describing some of the characteristics. I want you to know what whiteness is because you cannot look in a mirror, according to CRT, and tell whether or not you got whiteness. This is not from some flaky, fringoid source. Well, it is. That flaky fringoid source just happens to be the Smithsonian Institution. Culturally, this is as mainstream as it gets. It's divided into some topics. I won't read the whole thing. It's tiny print. Under the broad topic of family structure, you are afflicted by whiteness if you believe the nuclear family is the ideal social unit. That is whiteness. If you believe that the husband should be the head of his household, that is whiteness. If you believe that children should have their own rooms and learn to think independently as they grow, that is whiteness. That is under family structure. Under emphasis on scientific method, if you believe in objective, rational, linear thinking, that is whiteness. If you believe in cause and effect relationships, that's your whiteness. If you believe in quantitative analysis, that is measuring data to make determinations. That is whiteness. If you believe that hard, under, under work ethic, if you believe that hard work is a key to success, that is whiteness. You believe that work ought to come before play, 
That is whiteness. Under status, power, and authority. If you believe that authority is to be respected, that is whiteness. By the way, have you caught on to how many of these ideas are specifically, clearly, and directly biblical? You do understand what's under attack here is a biblical worldview. Don't miss it. I don't care if you are dark-skinned, light-skinned, green-skinned, or what's under attack in CRT is a biblical view of humanity. Under future orientation, if you believe in planning for your future, that is whiteness. Under time, if you believe that time should be scheduled and used intentionally, that is whiteness. So when CRT describes the hegemony of whiteness, it's not talking about people with a certain skin tone. Oh no, it's talking about people who share these ideas, which according to CRT are born out of people with this skin tone. All persons perceived to be in the hegemonous group are afflicted, afflicted by this whiteness and under CRT they are automatically and universally actually guilty of injustice and racism irrespective with any, without any connection whatsoever to their own thoughts words or deeds as to race. Your individual thoughts, words, and deeds don't matter. The fact that you are connected to the hegemony makes you guilty. This is what they mean by systemic racism. Systemic racism is the automatic guilt of those who align with whiteness without regard to whether or not you actually are a racist, which thing God would hate, does hate. This systemic racism and its absolute existence is a central point of dogma in critical race theory. It is, it is given that it is absolutely true. Proving that it does not exist statistically, empirically. Proving that the data do not support the ideas often used to sell systemic racism. Bodie Bauckham, in his book, Fault Lines, shows that demonstrates the statistical case that it is not more dangerous to be an unarmed young black man around police officers in America than it is to be an unarmed young light-skinned man. There is no statistical case. And yet, we've all heard it, pounded and pounded and pounded. And when you offer statistics to prove that it's not true, that's just your whiteness. See how circular that is? 
The use of data to make your point is proof that you are systemically racist because only people that up with whiteness use statistics to prove their point. It'll make you batty. Another key term. Intersectionality, the I, when you see CRT slash I. Intersectionality. All right. Think of, think of personal characteristics like bubbles in a Venn diagram. I am, I am this tall. I am this old. I am um, this melanin level. I am this whatever. Your, under CRT, intersectionality is, is the key to your having moral high ground. And your intersectionality is the intersection of how many non-hegemonous characteristics you have. I am female and not male. Since the hegemony is dominated by, by males, I am not identifying as the gender with which I was born. If I'm both not male and not gendered right, now I have two points of intersectionality. And the object of the game to get to the high ground morally under CRT is to have as many points of intersectionality as I possibly can to get away from the hegemony as far as I possibly can because CRT ultimately holds that those who are far from the hegemony are owed, are owed all manner of compensatory behaviors by the hegemony. As Marxism wishes to distribute economics, CRT, which is Marxist in its theoretical structure, longs for the distribution of cultural privilege. This is why right now in academia, in politics, in pop culture, the arts, showbiz, it is, it is becoming increasingly common for people to claim a non-hegemonous ethnicity. Elizabeth Warren and I are equally Native American. <laughs> and yet, she has a mid-six-figure faculty position at an Ivy League school because she identifies as Native American. And you're not allowed to say, you would think the biological child of parents who are not Native American would not become suddenly Native American. But one is not allowed to say that. Rachel Dolezal, whose parents are Anglo, has spent her entire life 
distancing herself into a non-Anglo identity. She is the head, the vocal and militant head of the Spokane Washington NAACP and is a professor of African studies at Eastern Washington University. Positions one would traditionally think might be held by people with a good bit more melanin than Rachel has. But Rachel claims there's even a term for it. I will disclaim this term in advance as offensive. I'm not about to cuss, but I'm about to use a cringeworthy term because it's so commonplace, now it has a name. It's called blackfishing. When I claim non-hegemonous ethnicity so I can get intersectionality points and the benefits that derive from them as Elizabeth Warren. Perfect example. Thank you for listening to this special McGregor podcast, A Culture Derailed Part One. Make sure to listen to part two when it's released.